0: Uh, bring us back to where we are. This is like a pre-introduction, but let's get our bearings again in the book of Luke because it has been a number of weeks. And once we do that, then we'll have a word of prayer and and enter on to the specific text that is before us. I'd like to show you here just a quick outline of the overview of the book because as we come to chapter 9 and verse 50, we've come to a major division in the book of Luke. In the first section of this book, verses uh, ver- chapter one one through four thirteen, we're dealing there with Messiah presented. We have John the Baptist introduced, and we have Jesus, his genealogy, and we have the announcements of their births, and we have Christ's youth and growing up, his baptism and the temptation, all of this preparing for the mission that Jesus has come to fulfill. Then you notice there at 414 through 950, we have what we refer to as the Galilean ministry. It's called the Galilean ministry because most of this takes place in the north of Israel in the region of Galilee. Jesus is fairly safe here in this area and He carries on a ministry here where He demonstrates His authority. The Galilean ministry is filled with miracles and wonders, showing who Jesus is. But you remember, we'll get to that later, but it starts certainly with rejection, and rejection is a part of all of it. But this is a separate section. Now, as you look at your text here, we'll come back to the overhead in a minute, but 9.50, 9.51 rather, there's the divide there. But at 9.51, we read this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's a not only a geographical note, but something very significant is taking place in transition in the book as Luke develops the Gospel. So the Galilean ministry now is ended, and we are journeying on to Jerusalem. So we refer to this as the journey uh, to Jerusalem, and here truth is articulated. There will be miracles in this section, but there, was, there is more teaching in this section. Jesus is addressing Uh, those who are listening to him, explaining to them the kingdom of God, the future death that he will pay, and the like. We'll get to that also in just a moment. But let's go back to the Galilean ministry and go in your text to 4.24. Luke chapter 4 and verse 24. 4.24 says, Now, this is, you'll notice it starts at verse 14, where Jesus is uh, rejected at Nazareth. Verse 16, I'll point you there. He went to Nazareth. Verse 16, at the end of his time at Nazareth, verse 24 says, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. to throw him down a cliff, to kill him. Now, if you will remember that far back in chapter 4, I argued that, I believe, that's out of sync chronologically. I think the point is that Luke is saying, here at the very beginning of this ministry of Jesus, at the beginning of the Galilean ministry, Jesus is rejected. And that is the significant point. Now, I, again, I don't think it's, the, it's chronological, but more thematic. But notice here, just note for a moment, the reference to Elijah. So we have at the beginning of the Galilean ministry, rejection and a reference to Elijah. Uh, the journey to Jerusalem begins at 9.51. How does it start? Go back to 9.51. And we note there, as we go through down to verse 53, that the people there did not welcome him. I don't think that is a mistake, that at the start of this new section we have, again, a rejection of Jesus. In fact, go all the way to chapter 19, which is the end of this section of the journey to Jerusalem. And in chapter 19 and verse 44, that is where it ends, verse 44. But in that last segment there, 41 through 44, what do we see? We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. You see the point? At the start of this new section, rejection. At the end of this section, rejection. At the start of the Galilean ministry, rejection. And so this rejection theme plays throughout and is in fact at the very core in chapters 13 and 14 of this entire section. So it starts with rejection, ends with rejection, and the center of it deals with rejection. The emphasis, as I mentioned, in this section of the Journey to Jerusalem will deal primarily with Jesus' teaching. And there will be especially three groups who are presented. If you could just picture them in your mind, Jesus will address his disciples, and he is going to become much more explicit, specific as to what it means to follow Christ, and what it will mean after Jesus is gone, and how they will carry on the mission. He's teaching his disciples, his followers. That's where we're going to start this section. It will be throughout. There is, then, in the middle, this much larger group, what we might call the multitudes, or the crowds. These crowds are very interested in what Jesus has to say, but it is crucial that Jesus wins them. If He does not win them, they will join the third party over here, and that's the religious establishment. As Jesus talks to this main, large group, He keeps calling them to repentance. He keeps calling them to turn. He calls them to embrace the message of the kingdom of God. To those who are the leaders of Israel, the establishment, it is a message of condemnation because they stand in the way of the masses joining with the disciples. So these three groups, through the teaching of Jesus, begin to play throughout this entire section. I give you that large overview to say we're coming to a very significant transition point as well as entering into the largest segment of Luke. With that having been said, let's ask the Lord direction as we come to chapter 9 and verse 51. Father, open our eyes to your truth, to your wisdom. I pray your hand of mercy and grace upon us to understand the text that is before us today. We thank you for how carefully and effectively and purposefully the Word of God is laid out. And Lord, as we strive to understand it, I pray that we'd look now beyond just the structure of these amazing texts and books and authors, but I pray, God, now that we will open our hearts to hear the Word that the Spirit teaches to us. Please instruct us and strengthen us. I pray for each one that is here. This sermon is so vital and needed in our day and time and for our church, and I pray, God, that we would heed what the Spirit teaches to this assembly today. Please be working and moving and accomplish, I pray, the work that you alone can accomplish, that Christ might be glorified, that we might be sanctified, that your name would be lifted up. Please work to that end, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Baptist pastor and English Puritan John Bunyan was imprisoned for his faith in 1675. As many of us know, he wrote a lengthy allegory while he was there in prison titled Pilgrim's Progress. That storyline as well as the title of Bunyan's book, work to stress that the Christian life is a journey toward a fixed destination. We've already read the 51st verse here, and we note that in the life of Jesus. And Bunyan understood that. There he is in a dank prison cell, writing the preface to Pilgrim's Progress, and he claims there in that preface, this book will make a traveler of thee. Why did he say that? Why did Bunyan say that? This book will make a traveler of thee. It was Bunyan's hope that his readers would understand that when you receive Jesus as Savior, you begin a lifelong journey toward a specific destination. That's a very easy point to miss. By nature, we focus on the here and the now. By nature, we focus on today. Yes, we have hopes and dreams about the future, but those hopes and dreams, you line them up in your mind, write them down on a piece of paper, and I would venture most of us, the vast majority of that sheet would be covered with dreams for this life. Things that we want to accomplish here. Our strivings are invested in accumulating wealth. Our strivings are invested in pursuing health. Our strivings are invested in satisfying our temporal pleasures. Our tendency is to look at this life as a resort rather than as a temporary journey to a final destination. And if the resort is not up to speed, we complain. In fact, we may become discouraged. We may even become depressed because the resort is not what we want it to be. But the Christian life, Bunyan wanted to remind us, as the Word of God reminds us, is to be focused on a final destination. And the text before us today draws our attention to that journey itself. We might focus on the destination. That would be a very appropriate uh, consideration. But the text here in Jesus' teaching guides us to think about today the journey. It is a journey. It is a move, a walk, a path. Remember the last chapters of the book of Acts? How were the early Christians referred to? Or early Christianity, I guess we could say, is referred to as the way, the path, the journey. That's what it is. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know Him as Savior, your life is to be fundamentally a journey. You're a traveler. And concerning that way and what it would involve, did Jesus leave us in the dark about it? He did not leave us in the dark about what that journey would involve. He did not leave us in the dark about what would be required of his followers. This is the overall emphasis of this central section of the book of Luke. And it is the emphasis of this initial passage as we enter into this new section. William Barclay said in comment on this very passage, or on the, that what we will look at here later at 57 and following, he said this, No one can ever say that he was induced to follow Jesus under false pretenses. No one was ever induced, no one was ever forced to follow Jesus after a sales job where Jesus really tricked us. Jesus went on record time and time again with His disciples to explain where the journey ended and what the journey would involve. And we need to ask ourselves this morning whether or not we really listen to what Jesus said about the journey or if we're seeking to redefine it on our own terms. There might be some among us here today and have been through the weeks, and we thank God for that. You're contemplating whether or not to follow Christ. I would call you to pay very careful attention because this is not the Jesus that's presented in our world. The Jesus that you find in this text may be a Jesus you've never met before and never heard about before. For those of us who are following Christ, this is an ideal opportunity for us to assess our walk and to consider whether we see the journey like He wants us to see it. Very simply, this passage before us through the end of the chapter breaks down into this. First of all, the way of Christ involves rejection. The way of Christ involves rejection. Verse 51, as the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. We're going to take some time to pause on that, particularly this first verse, verse 51, because it is so significant to our understanding of the Gospel of Luke. You see here the time approached; The Galilean ministry was complete. Jesus had fully demonstrated that he was Messiah, there was no question that he had done all that could be done rightly and appropriately to demonstrate that he was Messiah. Now in the sovereign plan of God, the journey for Jesus from this point forward led to his destiny on the hill of Golgotha. But we note here the emphasis is more positive than that. He set, his, set out for Jerusalem where he would be taken up to heaven. Does that remind you of anything? 931, remember back there, just not very far back, in the Transfiguration, as Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, verse 31, they appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus, and they spoke about what? They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Our translation, for some reason, cuts out the word fulfillment here and just uses the word approaching, but those very ideas are here in verse 51 there is a fulfillment in Jesus coming to Jerusalem. So I think it's the very same idea. It is referring to His resurrection and His ascension, His final climax of the mission that He was to accomplish here on earth. That's coming, and it will come in Jerusalem. Sensing this destiny, what does Jesus do? He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. The Greek phrase is so beautiful, We might not use it very often, but it says that he set his face. Or we could even translate it, he stiffened his face. It was often used, this phrase, in context of a difficult, dangerous mission. The English idiom might be, he set his jaw, or he steeled his eye on the goal. This is more than a geographical note we need to understand. As this section will bear out, Jesus set his face to attack the kingdom of darkness. That was the point. One uh, one commentator notes that the teachings of Jesus throughout this section, I quote, "...are marked by the precision and preemptoriness that belongs to operation orders in a military campaign." Jesus is attacking the powers of darkness. He's setting His face to Jerusalem. The war has been going on, but it has been largely preparation. Now He determines Jerusalem is His destiny." Some of you are much more up on this than I am, but I find it very, that Tolkien captures this so well. In The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there's that hobbit, uh, something like semi-human something or another, but a short guy that has this amazing duty of destroying a ring that holds evil powers. To do so, he must ascend the mountain of doom in the teeth of horrific opposition and inexpressible trial. It is really an impossible journey. And who comes along Frodo's side? That's Samwise Gamgee, or whatever his name is, something like that. He comes alongside this brave warrior. Tolkien captures beautifully this idea. Without Samwise, Frodo never gets there. He needs his encouragement and he needs his protection. And we find that Frodo really doesn't have it, perhaps in the end because of the power of this ring, the Tolkien writes this about his friend Samwise. His will was set, and only death would break it. His will was set, and only death would break it. That captures the essence here. The journey of Jesus would take him to something much worse than the mountain of doom. It would take him to the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate stand against evil and wickedness and darkness and Satan. It would take him right to the gates of death and he would storm them. His will was set toward Jerusalem. Now, as we say that, please understand, one more note, that we should not look at Jerusalem here, or this starting now, as simply one journey on the way to Jerusalem. Like one kind of meandering route, straight shot overall to Jerusalem. Rather, Jesus is going to be making His way up and down throughout this territory. We have, for instance, in 1038, He's right outside of Jerusalem, and in 1711, He's back in northern Israel. So don't get the idea that it's just one route now to Jerusalem. Some would suggest that there's even three visits to Jerusalem. The point is that in overall purpose of His mission, Jerusalem is now in His focus. Wherever His body is pointed, whether north or south, east or west... Jerusalem is in His vision. His final conquest of death will take place there, and Jesus knows it. We just note, if you want to just refresh yourself with this map, up there in Galilee, the ministry moves around uh, the Sea of Galilee, and now Jesus will journey down. We will find Him in chapter um, 19, crossing the Jordan River. I've lost my light pointer somewhere, but crossing the Jordan River... Uh, at Jericho and heading that way toward Jerusalem, we find him here in this text actually heading down through Samaria, which was another distinct route down to Jerusalem. So again, it's not that he visits Jerusalem once here, but he, that is his focus. Thank you. At verse 52 then, let's pick up there. Jesus is set now for Jerusalem, and that needs to cover all that we discussed through 1944 in this, in this book. Verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead to the Samaritan village, as we read, but the people did not welcome him. So Jesus is journeying south now, away from the safer confines of Galilee. His journey takes him through Samaria, which is really not Israel as they would look at it. The Jews and Samaritans had some common relatives in the past, but as can sometimes be the case with common relatives, They were at each other's throat all the time. They hated one another. In fact, the Samaritans set up their own worship at the holy site of Mount Gerizim. They had written now their own, or at least had a form of their own Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they did not like the Jews, for they worshipped on Mount Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, rather than on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped. In fact, historian Josephus records that the Samaritans were known to try to stop festival-goers who were working their way south down through Samaria. In fact, there was some record, at least Josephus claims that, that some Jews were even killed by Samaritans on their way down. So Jesus isn't exactly playing it safe here as he heads down through Samaria. He is particularly not playing it safe when he sends word ahead to this Samaritan village and says, I want to stay here. I'm asking that you would receive me. It's possible that those who are going ahead are not only making physical preparations but are in fact testing out whether this village will receive the message of Jesus. Now who is this that's about to enter their village? Let's think of the Galilean ministry. This is the Jesus who has fed the thousands. This is the Jesus who has day after day helped those who are ill and healed them. This is the Jesus who has spoken words of grace and truth. Remember, this is a man of absolute moral purity. A man of grace and goodness and kindness and love. Jesus has done nothing to harm anyone ever. Can I enter your town? There's no room in our village for the likes of you. Why? Because he's headed to Jerusalem. Here is the blindness, the maddening blindness of religious bigotry. And isn't that maddening for us? We know Jesus, we know His splendor, we know His goodness, we have a message of forgiveness in His name, there is nothing that we take to this world in our message that is meant for anything other than their good and their benefit. And how is it received? You're a bigot. You just want to control us. You're just looking for money. It goes on and on today. I feel sometimes like when we take the gospel of Jesus, it's like we've landed on an island somewhere where the people have never learned that you can drink liquids. And they get all of their liquids out of sucking on celery sticks. And you happen to land on this island at a time when the heat wave has struck. It's in the 100 degree range. And these people are sweating so profusely, so hot, they're trying to get all the liquid they can get out of celery, but they're dying. They're shriveling up. And you bring this big jug of water and you say, Here, drink. And they won't do it. This is Jesus who goes to the Samaritan village and they say, we don't want you. So it is today. Maybe the offense is different than going to Jerusalem. It may just be Christianity. I'm sorry. I don't want to hear about Jesus if you're a Christian. Protestantism. No, I can't listen to that. Baptist. Ooh. That'll really stop a lot of people. I don't want to hear about Jesus if that's who you are, if that's where you're coming from. You're an evangelical? No, I don't want to get mixed up in that. Or maybe you're a little too conservative. I don't want to hear from Jesus about Jesus from you. We face that, don't we? Our earnest desire for the blessing and well-being of others is con- construed as bigoted as an attempt to control as an attempt to gain money and all kinds of things. Let's just remember who we're walking with. God will deal with those who do present the gospel of Christ for those reasons. It's horrible. But we know who Jesus is. We know what he's done. We know what he offers to people. Let's take that message, but let's always remember that rejection is part of it. In such circumstances, rejection is exasperating. All we want to do is help and do good and to present to you this one, Jesus, who will love you and will teach you the truth of God. We don't want him. Send him on. It makes us frustrated sometimes. In fact, sometimes as Christians, we get angry. That's exactly what happens with James and John, verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Ash in a flash, as one of my instructors called it. Ash in a flash. Just call it down, God. We'll just, boom, we'll puff them right there. Now, who are these guys got to be off their hinge? I mean, what's, you know, they're a little bit, what's going on here? You know, they're really not as far off as might strike, it might strike us. I think he's really looking back at 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah called down fire from God. Did you remember the Elijah connection back at the beginning of the Galilean ministry? I think we're at it here again. In fact, many texts, though I, probably not original, many of the original scribes or early scribes of the text of the New Testament added a phrase in there, with the word Elijah in it so that we would understand why they're saying, should we call down fire from heaven? Elijah in that context of 2 Kings chapter 1 was serving God at a time when Israel was rejecting the Lord. And Elijah did call down fire from heaven and that fire came and consumed the enemies of God on a number of occasions. And that's what John and James are saying here. You're greater than Elijah the prophet. Should we call down fire now and turn these people into dust? I mean, you just say the word, Jesus, and we'll tor- torch these turkeys. You know, Bring it down. Bring it on them. Here it comes. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. What had Jesus taught these men? What had He taught them? Let's go back to 627. Do you remember this phrase? Or this teaching? 627. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those mistreat you. That's what Jesus had said, and they want to torch their enemies. Now Jesus had also said in chapter 9 and verse 5 that as you go into a village and they reject you, you are to shake off the dust from your sandals and move on. In other words, there is a place where rejection means that we need to move on. We cannot force people to like us, to hear us, to accept Christ, but we're to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. How will Jesus himself handle all of this rejection at the end? Remember chapter 19, we will see Jesus over the city of Jerusalem weeping for those that had rejected him. Weeping. And so Jesus rightly rebukes them. And as we take in all of this section of the book of Luke, we can say that Jesus is certainly saying and will say, will teach, that judgment will come. But that is to be left in God's hands for God's time. It was God's time for a little while in the book of 2 Kings. It's not now time. This is a time of grace. This is a time of love. This is a time of patience. This is a time when we take the hits of rejection and we keep them to ourselves and we extend back not curses but blessings. That's this time. The Lord is not slow concerning His promise. But the Lord is also not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and so he extends his mercy and his grace, and we must do the same. And Christian, let's remember in this world of rejection, that's the spirit we're to take with it. There's dangers that bubble here and there among Christians who are so angry with this lost world. If we knew how vile this world really was, if we could see it from the perspective of God, we'd be a lot more angry. We don't even begin to see the rebellion against our Lord. But our task is not to become angry, bitter Christians. Our task is to walk to Jerusalem and to be gracious and patient and loving Because when God's judgment falls, any sense of need for vindication on our part will be lost. That judgment will come in his time. We extend mercy. So Jesus rebuked them. They were not thinking his thoughts after him. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds very similar, I should say, with the words of Peter. When he says to Jesus, you will not go to the cross And Jesus says to Peter, you don't understand my ways. He rebuked them, verse 56, and so they went to another village. We need to get this. The way of Christ involves rejection. Jesus is not a popular name in this world and the path he walks is a lonely one. If your face is set toward the heavenly Jerusalem in this day and age, you will experience rejection. And we don't face a lot of persecution in this setting, and time it doesn't appear. But that day will come. It may come at least, we don't know, but it certainly seems that it will. If Christ tarries and if we continue on here, I think that day will come to a greater degree. And it's increasing, is it not? Stephen Carter is an African-American Ivy League scholar. He's done quite a bit of work and quite a bit of thinking on minorities and cultures. And he recently proposed in a book that any subgroup in a culture that is repeatedly and widely ridiculed, that somehow is not granted a seat under the umbrella of societal tolerance, will eventually be persecuted. Those are sobering words. That day is not here, that day may not be fast approaching, but is it not the case that the only cultural minority that is openly, routinely, ridiculed, as stupid and intolerant and harmful to the culture is the community of Christians. What I mean is without sanction. That is, there's no one saying you can't do that. It gets by. It gets by fairly subtly right now, but it's getting by, isn't it? I do this exercise all the time. When there's a negative thing said about Christians, particularly about evangelicals, When there's something negative said about them in the press, substitute in the place of Christian or Evangelical a racial minority or a sexual preference minority. And ask yourself the question, would this writer lose his or her job? The answer every time is yes. In some cases, they'd be imprisoned. But they can say it about Christians. It's coming. The rejection is real, and it's building. Well, what do we do? Some people say we get mad. We start fighting back. We let people know what we think about that. There's others that run away. In fact, some of them are digging holes in the ground and building their bunkers and these kinds of things. And on and on it goes. What would Jesus do? he keep walking to Jerusalem. he keep teaching people, or dealing with people with patience and love and mercy because we're not on this journey to set down our resort. We are on this journey to go to heaven. This isn't our home. We're pilgrims here. There are rights, of course, that can be appropriately defended, but let's always do so with grace and with mercy and with gentleness and with patience, not with anger and meanness. Because Jesus told us this is how it would be. Rejection is a real thing for the follower of Christ. The way of Christ involves rejection. I won't take as much time, but if you'll endure with me here for a little bit longer. The way of Christ requires commitment, secondly. now I want you to think here just for a moment, let your mind go uh, on this thought. Jesus is full of mercy. He is good, and he loves his people with infinite love. Nothing Jesus says in this passage is unjustly harsh. His words are honest. They are necessary. They are loving. They are not a fancy sales job by any means. They are more like a needed inoculation. They're like a shot from the nurse. It hurts like crazy, but it's necessary, and that person who's giving you the shot loves you. We have to think that way as we come into this passage, or we think Jesus is just really hard to get along with. No, Jesus sees the picture. He sees Jerusalem in his sights. And so he speaks frankly and honestly with us about what it means to follow him. In this section, Jesus is going to address three potential disciples I think they're thematically arranged rather than chronologically arranged. I think that Luke purposely puts them down here. Matthew puts them in a different place earlier in time. I think Luke puts them down right here because he wants to hit what he's just said about rejection now with what it means to walk on this journey. And so as they were walking, verse 57, along the road a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Booker T. Washington was born on a plantation in Malden, Virginia. He became a free man when the Civil War ended. And he proposed later to make his way to Richmond, Virginia, which he didn't even know what direction that was in. But he set out as a young man on a 500-mile journey by foot. He begged rides here and there, ended up on carts and wagons and things like that, and with much walking, sleeping in abandoned places and under the stars, made his way finally to Richmond, Virginia. You can imagine what he looked like when he got there. Dirty, tired, completely broke. He had no money to enter Hampton College, which he hoped to enter and he had no money even to find a place to live. So as he tells the story and Up From Slavery, he spent several nights sleeping under a raised boardwalk. That's uh, the precursor of the sidewalk. He was raised up in one area and he slept down underneath that boardwalk. It's amazing as he writes the book because he says now today, in very humble terms, but he says now today I have been invited as a dignitary to Richmond several times. But when I go back, I think of that boardwalk under which I slept. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm on my way to Richmond. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. If you want to come with me, you have to understand, it might mean some nights we sleep under the stars. Because you see, this is no celebrity tour. I'm not coming with great distinction. I'm not going to be received by every village There's a direct connection between what this disciple asked for, what Jesus says, and the rejection of this Samaritan town. There will be people who say to us, we don't want you. So it's no celebrity tour. If you want to walk with me, realize that it's a way of rejection. Daryl Box says this, Jesus is an alien sojourning for a time in a foreign land. Rejection will be a given, and finding a home may be difficult. Now there's times when Jesus did have a place to lay his head. He's not speaking here about the fact that everybody who's a good Christian is homeless. That's not his point. There were many times that he had decent accommodations. But he's saying to this disciple, you need to understand this is not a path of ease. I've never laid it out as a path of ease. No one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease, says one pastor. I think he's right. No one, he says. If your Christianity has not brought you discomfort to has not brought discomfort to your life, something is wrong. I think there's truth there. I think there's a good hard word for us in this affluent society. Second candidate, verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. Now here Jesus initiates the call, but the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now the man's father was probably not dead or he would not have been there in public, most likely. We don't know that, however. It doesn't say. That's really not the point. But we can understand that the Jewish custom was for rapid burial. And there was... uh, no undertaker in that culture that was your job as the family to take care of the body and you would take care of it very quickly and bury it very soon so most likely this man is saying listen my father's aging and I would like to first fulfill the family duty of burying him and then after I get that job done I will come and follow you it seems to be the idea we we can't press that point but it seems to be the idea It's hard for us to imagine. We turn burial over to other people. But in these cultures, burial is an extremely important matter. It is an obligation that supersedes all obligations. In fact, the rabbis would say, you don't even need to kill the Passover lamb if it's Passover festival and you have a family member who's died. In fact, you don't have to read the Torah. You don't have to read the scriptures. You don't have to say the great Shema. You, in fact, don't even have to keep the law if you're burying somebody. I guess they felt people had enough to think about that they wouldn't break the law. I don't know. But they said all of these moral religious obligations are all set aside if you have to bury someone. So think of it in that context. This man simply wants to do his moral, cultural duty. And what does Jesus say? Verse 60, Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Remember where we started? Jesus is good. Jesus is loving. Jesus is merciful. Don't forget that because this sounds very cruel, doesn't it? Let the dead bury their dead. I think what Jesus is saying here is right on target. If you think that burial customs supersede keeping the law, I'll not even address that point. But if you think burial customs supersede following me, you're wrong. There is nothing that supersedes following Christ. Not family obligation, nothing. Follow me. To bury one's father was a most noble act, honorable thing to do. But if this man was going to put his father above following Christ, he was not fit to follow Jesus. So Jesus is saying, I think here, let the spiritually dead, those separated from God, those not involved in proclaiming the kingdom of God, let them bury their dead. Those who are going to follow me have a higher calling. As Bach again puts it, nothing is to block the pursuit of discipleship and nothing is to postpone its start. We do have legitimate family obligations, but we should all recognize that the call of God takes precedence over family. The call of God takes precedence over family. Now often the call of God includes our responsibilities to family, undoubtedly, but it is always greater. It is always larger. Follow me, says Jesus. Third candidate, verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The plowing imagery should be fairly self-explanatory, but let's think in terms of the rugged terrain of Israel and the rocky soil, and of course, plowing with an animal, not this flat, rich soil of Minnesota where you put on your massive tractor and just plow it up, and if you look behind you for a minute, it's not going to be the end of the world. You might have a little wiggle in the furrow, and all the farmers around will notice that, but not a big deal. But here, you get the cart off. And you're on this rocky, hilly terrain, and you could really be offline for quite a while and cause yourself quite a problem. That's not, some, that's not a good plowman. You put your hand on the plow, you keep it on the plow, and how do you proceed? The same way you still do today, as I understand it, you look at the end of a line, and you keep your eyes planted there. You start looking around at the radio and that big massive machine that they ride now as as farmers, you start looking around behind you, you get distracted on other things, you're not gonna have a very straight line. And we work on that right now at our farm, you know, at mowing the grass. We're trying to teach how to get that first line cut straight down the middle of the lawn. I mean, they're kind of going like this right now, but we're making progress, right? But when it's plowing, this is dangerous, this is a problem, Uh, it's a waste. That's what Jesus is saying, you keep your eyes fixed on one thing. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. You look ahead and you keep plowing. What did he say in 923? You take up your cross. It's a one-way trip. If you want to follow me, says Jesus, then follow me. If you want to look back and get everything all fixed up at home first and all taken care of and all of your ducks in a row and then you want to follow me and do what I ask you to do, you're not getting the picture. You just do what I say to do. You follow me now. I think that what Jesus is saying here is it's that urgent. The work is that urgent. You may not always understand it. You may not want to do it. You you may have things that you need to finish up first. And if I speak to anyone here who is considering coming to Christ, embracing Him as your Savior, don't wait to get everything all figured out. Don't wait to finish up all the things that you need to finish up. What you need to do is in humble faith embrace him and follow him and come to him. It's a lack of a clean break that Jesus warns against, writes one. Discipleship requires undivided loyalty. Discipleship is not an emotional decision of one moment, but a walk of life. Quoting Karras, he writes, Following him is not a task which is added to others like working a second job. It is everything. Did you hear that? It's not a task like a second job, it's everything. It is a solemn commitment which forces the disciple to be to reorder all other duties. You remember the phrase in Romans when it speaks of baptism? We are buried with Christ in baptism and we rise with Christ to what? To walk in newness of life. Everything becomes new. Everything becomes ordered and oriented toward eternity and toward Jesus Christ on the walk of faith. Now this is a heavy call, isn't it? You go now, you lay down everything, you follow me, no matter what other entanglements might be, have, have to be left behind. I can go back to the Lord of the Rings. Favorite phrase in our house is Gimli the dwarf who's facing an impossible battle with allies. Just a few allies are talking together, they're going into an impossible battle. And that dwarf with his axe and warrior heart says, certainty of death, little hope of success, what are we waiting for? I can't say it like he does. It's a great line. That's the kind of people Jesus is seeking. Not because he needs them, but because by his grace he calls us to him. Certainty of death. For us, it's a little different, isn't it? It's not no chance of success, it's a guaranteed chance of success. It's a guaranteed success. You've seen those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I, They're an improvement. They're not bad. I don't think they're very good, because I think we ought to ask, what does Jesus want me to do? That's a little more troubling phrase, and I guess it takes more letters, so nobody's thought of that. But you know, what would Jesus do? It's really nice when we can run around willy-nilly and all decide what we think Jesus would do in our situation, which usually happens to be exactly what we think we ought to do in our situation. We should be asking, what does Jesus in his revealed word tell us to do? But is it not an improvement for those of you old enough to remember the phrase, try Jesus? Do you remember that? I think that was the 70s. Try Jesus. That I would propose is a thought that never crossed Christ's mind, that you would try him. Give him a chance. Just see if you like this lime diet Coke or whatever the thing is now. Just give it a try. You see that Jesus here? You put your hand to the plow, you don't ever take it off. You keep moving forward. But is that not the Jesus that is proclaimed in so many places today? Just give him a try. What is there to lose? That's not the call of Christ. As Samwise put it, his will was set and only death would break it. For Jesus, his will was set and not even death would break it. As I said of Gimli, the certainty of death was the, is there, but we have every confidence in success. Is your will set on following Christ to the heavenly Jerusalem? If not, please hear me carefully. The idea is not to get all of your ducks in a row, as we say, to get your life all reformed and ready to receive Christ. The the task is not for you to become someone that you're not. The entrance into this army of Christ that follows to the heavenly Jerusalem is through the door of simple faith. You trust Christ that He died in your place, paying the penalty of your sin, and that He rose from the dead, defeating death and giving, providing to His people salvation. All you do is see that truth and embrace it. As you do, to think that this simple act of faith is merely a trying of Jesus would be to look at it in the wrong perspective. But don't lean upon yourself. Just trust his hand and walk in faith. And when you do, know that you've been called to a great battle. You've been called to a great life. There will be rejection. There will be difficulty. It will mean that you have to reprioritize everything in your life. All of those things will come. Don't worry about them yet. But know that that's the life that you embrace. We don't want to strike a false dichotomy there, saying that we have to become something first. But we also don't want to say that that simple act of faith is receiving simply a a trial run with Jesus. It's not a trial run. You pick up your cross and you go to the end. You put your hand on the plow and you never return. If need be, if God calls you to it, you don't even return to say goodbye to your family. If that's his call, you go and you run. If you've not received Christ as Savior you need to embrace him in simple faith. If you have, can we not walk away today with joy in our hearts that glory awaits on the road ahead? There's not, the glory's not here. The perfection's not here. The ultimate joy is not on the journey. It's there. It's there in pieces, it's there in parts. We taste it, we're pursuing it. But are we not always grasping for it? It's never full. It's never absolute. It's never complete. It's real joy. But the reason it's never fully realized is because its realization is in the next world. Run after it with all your heart and be a Christian who's on a journey. Our Father, we bow before you humbly knowing that we fall very far short of the call of Christ. And none of us will stand in heaven claiming, I am a disciple. I follow Jesus well and therefore I am saved. We will need to all throw ourselves at your mercy depending upon the work that Christ has accomplished in our behalf. But Having prayed that, I thank you God for the journey of faith and I pray that we would be focused upon faith in you that will enable us to follow the call There may be death, there may be trial, there will certainly be rejection. But Lord God, I pray that you will encourage us with the destiny of it all. Draw us to yourself and draw any that know you not as Savior to saving faith, we pray. Strengthen us as your people, in the name of Christ, amen.